This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Furminger, and today I'm delighted, nay, I am well chuffed, to welcome Joseph Malazzi to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Joseph Malazzi, who I've also heard referred to as Joe, is a legendary showrunner, writer, and creator of universes behind some of the most essential television works of the last couple decades. That's no overstatement. I know I'm pointing at the camera for an audio podcast. Uh, Joseph was an executive producer on Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, and Stargate Universe, and those 300-plus episodes of television forever altered the landscape of the Vancouver film and television industry, and of sci-fi in general. Joseph is also the mind behind the gone-far-too-soon space epic Dark Matter and Utopia Falls, a genre-bending take on a coming-of-age story in which a group of teens in a distant future colony uncover an ancient forbidden archive of historical, cultural, and musical relics. Everything I think I know about Joseph Malazzi comes from four sources. One, the television he's created, sci-fi epics that are at once character-driven and mythology-building. Two, people who've worked with him, people like my BFF Amanda Tapping, Paul McGillian, Mike Dopad, Robert Cooper, and countless others who've sat across from me in my podcast lab and can attest to his vision and his passion for work. Three, social media, at Baron Destructo, through which I've gleaned that Joseph enjoys dogs, K-pop, and junk food, and is committed to doing everything in his power to revisit the Stargate sphere. And four, IMDB, which, although an often unreliable source, tells me that Joseph is a fellow Montrealer. And not just a fellow Montrealer, but we went to the same elementary school. Just found that out. That blows my mind. So today we're going to talk about as much of that as is humanly possible an attempt to get to know this remarkable artist who changed the landscape here in Vancouver. Joseph Malazzi, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you for having me. So you have done the route from Montreal to Vancouver and back to Toronto. That's that the route correct. that you took. And I, and I did Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. So um, yeah, don't hear a lot of people going that route, but there you go. <laughs> Hi, so we are recording uh, over Zoom um, because people in the future, I just want you to know that we are still in the pandemic. I know that we're at least like 10 days away from COVID-19 being cured and all of our social justice issues being solved, um, but we're still in the midst of all of that right now. So Joseph, I've, can I call you Joseph or Joe? Which do you Joe prefer? Joe is fine. Whichever would you, you prefer. I mean, I, I Joseph it's usually makes me Joe. Feels, yeah, okay, good. Do, do you want to be Joseph? Do you feel Joseph is more professional? The thing is, I'm here in my pajamas wearing a gem in the hologram shirt in my bedroom. I'm not Lovely. feeling super professional right now. So if I could call you Joe, that's also how, uh, how even, even you know people who've worked on Stargate refer to you, I would appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I've been asking everybody from my, from my heart at the beginning of these episodes how, how they're doing. So I ask you, how are you, how are you doing in the midst of this global pandemic? You know, I, I'm almost hesitant to say, but I'm doing fantastic. That's, uh, I'd to love be honest, to hear it. As, as a writer, I am used to basically staying home and uh, not venturing out all that much. Yeah. And uh, that's the way it's been. <laughs> I mean, I started development. Uh, I, I finished a show, uh, Utopia Falls, at the end of 2019, uh, delivering the final episode in December, and then decided I would take some time off for development. And that time ended up, being what's well, going to turn out to be a year of development, yeah. glorious development work. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, 
I'm, I'm having an okay time, to be honest with you. <laughs> you are one of my favorite um, Twitterers, tweeters. Your social media game has only improved since the pandemic. I think because it also, it lines up with my need to feed myself um, comfort food. So um, do, like, do you, do you find that you are, you are using the social media more? I, so? def I definitely am. I, I obviously have more time to use this uh, social media and especially Twitter. I mean, I have a blog that I've been, you know, uh, updating every day since I think the end of 2007. Amazing. Uh, with everything from behind the scenes, pictures and videos. I mean, uh, just yesterday I found a bunch of old photos from the Stargate vault, so I, I posted those. Um, but I've done a lot of Twitter uh, lately. I find Twitter a lot easier. Yeah. as well and it you know it just allows me to cover a wide range of topics as you mentioned everything from dark matter and stargate to um k-pop and various unusual foods yeah can we talk i want to i was going to leave this until closer to the end of the episode but i just want to get into the unusual food right now um but because because of you i have gone on to various websites and ordered candy and and chips and various things from the internet because of you um when you post so you are you are known in the twitterverse for posting these these photos of various like something smothered in cheese and deep fried with sauce on it and or, or a video of it and being like yes no so when you do what when what does a junk food need to need to present in order for you to post your yes no question and two isn't the answer always yes i mean because i find for me the, the answer is yes right like <laughs> I, I would say the answer is usually yes it depends yeah. i mean Tabina, are you an adventurous eater yes well, I mean, and if I if I ate though how I how I really want to all the time, I think I would be gravely ill. You yeah. know, because like a lot of the stuff that you post, like you, I think you posted one that was like um, a grilled cheese sandwich that was made from pizza and then like deep fried and then had cheese. I, I was like, I would eat that, and then I would have a coronary episode of some kind. But yeah, I I would. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I scour the internet in search of at least one item a day for my uh, daily yes-no uh, query, yeah. culinary query. And I mean, it ranges uh, from, you know, anything to like the fairly benign, usually something like kimchi to something a little uh, kind of more off the wall. Um, and there's been like plenty of like really off the wall uh, items. But I mean, I'm a fairly adventurous eater and I'll eat pretty much anything. Usually the stuff I say no to are things that you know, most people wouldn't bat an eyelash. I'm not a huge fan of mixing fruit with dessert. Like, so if you're basically like a chocolate covered kiwi is, is definitely a no-go. I'd, I'd rather eat like a basket of, of fried crickets before I'm going to eat a chocolate covered kiwi. So, no one can see my face right now. So I don't know how I'd describe my face. You're making the face like someone who's I'm been offered confused. a basket of uh, fried crickets. <laughs> I would eat fried crickets. Frankly, I do. Mm -hmm. I like um, uh, things that are made with cricket protein powder because I've mm -hmm. also heard that in, in the future, it might be a very sustainable kind of, uh, kind of food source. But no, you posted something recently that I have actually ordered online, which is um, flaming hot uh, Cheetos macaroni and cheese flavor. So like I, I, oh, yeah. I was like, this should not exist. I need to eat this right now. So it hasn't arrived yet, but my goal when it arrives is to um, make them into a deep fried, like to, to, uh, to, to fry them up and coat them with crushed actual Cheetos and then, fry, and then put them in my face. So wow, that, uh, that's uh, some <laughs> top chef's action right there. Please report back. Yeah, okay, so um, I want to go back in time because I do, I do feel like I know you, but I also don't know you at all, even though we're both Lakeshore School Board, Allencroft Elementary mm -hmm. School. Um, when you were there, did, did they have uh, cross-country skis and snowshoes that you would use for gym class? Because I have mm -hmm. a very vivid memory of, of that. No, no. I don't remember cross-country uh, skis or snowshoes. What I remember about gym class is that uh, for like one week, every year you know sometimes it would be like 
softball and sometimes it would be football or gymnastics. And then for one week, it would be the parachute. Yes! And it would just be this giant parachute that you would just, it was like, Wait. what is it, like this giant like tarp that you would, you know, you know, throw up in the air and everybody would kind of like huddle under and it would kind yes! of drop and that would be your exercise for, oh. for half an hour every week. That's that is that's something that the the kids today they don't get to experience. Yeah. They don't get to experience much, frankly, because it's all over Zoom. Or my daughter's going back to her socially distanced school wearing a mask and all of that in the next couple of days. But but let's you know what? Let's go back. Let's go back to the West Island then. Um, I wanted I to, I want to get to know where you come from and how you ended up with the brain that you have. I've had these conversations with Dennis Heaton, Simon Barry, uh, another Montrealer. Um, All very talented, former Montrealers. Yes, absolutely, who also enjoys some junk food. Um, and, mm -hmm. and Robert Cooper too, about like how they ended up with the brain that they have, with that unique kind of perspective that you know leads them to who they are. And so I feel that the answers can be found in childhood. So. Let's go back in time then. Absolutely. Nine years old. Who they were always you? Do. <laughs> I was an avid comic book collector. I read comic books much to my, my mother's chagrin. Mm -hmm. Loved the comic book world, but also loved sci-fi. And uh, my mother, in an attempt to sort of try to transition me from comic books to novels, bought me will introduce me to the likes of Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and Harlan Ellison and, you know, kind of the classics. And, um, you know, so growing up, I was very much, I guess, a nerd. The comic books, the sci-fi, I mean, movies, Planet of the Apes was one of my favorites. Yeah. And I always felt I wanted to be a writer. I would, uh, you know, in, in third grade, I wrote my first terrible novel, a sci-fi novel. What was uh, it called? Tell me. It, it was called The Robot Revolution. Uh, Timely. Yes, and uh, it probably exists somewhere as a handwritten draft uh, in a duotang in my mother's garage. Um, and so basically, I, you know, I just always knew I wanted to be a writer. And of course, my mother would often tell me, well, writing isn't really a, a career. Writing is something you do on the side. So maybe, you, you know, you can be a lawyer and you can write on the side. And, yeah. uh, and uh, fortunately, I did not heed my mother's advice and yeah. uh so i'm sorry was it yeah. writing in general or was it screenwriting i mean you mentioned your no absolutely not that screenwriting. Was a novel. yeah yeah not no it was actually prose uh short stories and i thought um you know I, I would be a writer and never even thought about script writing until um i was in uh uh early university uh, and uh, one of my friends, Paul Molly, who would become my, my, my writing partner, I, uh, I was actually working on a novel. I sent him a novel and, and, and he was like, a, you know, he read it and, and um, you know, God love him. He's always very honest. He was like, this is terrible. Uh, but, you know, goes, Everybody's you know, a critic. It, it's very <laughs> filmic. It would make a really good uh, script. And so I just went out and learned this, the script writing format, which is actually pretty straightforward. Yeah. And that terrible novel became a, an equally terrible script. But it essentially, it, it is what launched my career. I ended up, um, you know, thinking, you know, maybe, you know, there, there's something to this and, and sending out, I remember like a hundred resumes to like different production companies uh, trying to get my foot in the door as a script reader. And I think 10 of them uh, wrote back, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And one of them, a animation company in Montreal called Sinar Animation at the time. Is this how Caillou ended up on your, yes, on your yes. IMDb? I, I, got, I got my first break <laughs> writing for animation. The Visual World of Richard Scarry, Caillou, yeah. um, Little Lulu, Paddington Bear. Uh, and, and from there, I, you know, I went from screenwriting to story editing to development and uh, my writing partner, I ended up forming a, you know, a partnership with Paul, um, and we ended up transitioning to live-action teen sitcom, a series called Student Bodies that ended yes. up shooting in Montreal. And from there, some not-so-great one-hour action adventures, and eventually Stargate, which was supposed to be a two-year gig and turned into a wonderful 12-year ride. Yeah, multiple series, like... Uh, 300 plus episodes, you know, and fans 
all over the world, passionate, passionate fans to this day. Yeah. So um, that's, that's remarkable. So I'm really curious though about, you know, cause you, you mentioned animation, Caillou. I have very mixed feelings about Caillou because I remember <laughs> my daughter loved it so much and I just- Annoying, no? Super, super annoying, yeah. But like, and so wholesome, I'm like, yeah, this kid ever shut up. Um, but you know, so when did you, when was the first time that you wrote something that you felt really, really represented the kind of work that you wanted to do? You know, a true Joseph Malozzi story. And look, if you I say mean, Caillou, I'm going to be so, I'm going to be so no, embarrassed. No, look, no, look, to, to be honest with you, I, I, there's no way I would slag my, my, my time in animation. I had a really, yeah. really good time. I mean, you know, if you look at my, my very first animated story was a, it was like a five minute uh, or 10 minute short for the busy world of Richard Scarry called Patrick Pig Learns to Talk. And it, and really, when you distill that particular script, it really has um, kind of the framework for pretty much every script I ever write. There's kind of, it's, 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 it's character driven, there's humor, and there's usually a twist uh, at some point in the story. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I had a great time in animation. And in fact, I always tell writers, first time writers who are trying to get their foot in the door, yes, write your pilot, yes, write your spec script, but look into animation. They tend to be more accepting of first time kind of new writers. Hmm. And you, you essentially will hone your craft while getting paid, you know, before you make the transition to live action. So, I, um, you know, I had a great time in animation. I had a great time working on student bodies, which was, you know, I, I loved writing humor. Um, I think really though, you know, if there's, if there's a script that really stands out for me as, as the one script that, that I think back to as, as the one script that, that sort of kind of embodied the type of stuff I, I, I love to write moving forward. It was a window of opportunity for uh, Stargate SG-1, which is a time loop episode, which uh, when we originally pitched it was very dark. And then executive producer Robert Cooper kept like, giving us notes and saying, you know, we should do this, we should do that. And then ultimately I, was, I, I said to him, this is, we're just doing Groundhog Day. And he's like, yeah, exactly, do Groundhog Day. And at the time I thought, well, why would we just want to repeat something that, that's been done before? And I realized that TV shows and movies and film do this all the time, but what makes it stand out is the fact that it's unique to your world and your characters. Mm -hmm. So at the time I was thinking, ah, you know, okay, a Stargate version of Groundhog Day, it was a lot of fun to write, uh, but now I look back on it and, and, and over 350 plus episodes, it still ranks as a fan favorite, which is yeah. mind boggling. So, so your favorite, your favorite episode um, had a string of humor in it, like a thread of humor in it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was my favorite. I, I, I'd say in answer to your question, it was the first script I wrote that was indicative of right. the type of you know, show I like to write, the type of characters. The type yeah. Of okay. Um, you, sir, are a showrunner, are you not? I am, yes. You are. Okay, so let's talk about the career progression for somebody who wants to be a showrunner. Like, is it the kind of situation where you state, I want to be a showrunner, and then, and then you pursue that? Or is it the kind of thing that you kind of graduate into, you know, from mm -hmm. like, from the writer's room, and then you... I'm often approached by people outside the industry who do exactly what you say in the, in the first instance, say, well, I want to be a showrunner. Um, and it's not that simple. What you need first and foremost are uh, to work with showrunners who believe in you, who are open and willing to uh, allow you to make mistakes, but, but teach you the process. And so in that respect, my writing partner, my former writing partner, Paul Molly and I were very lucky to land on Stargate, uh, where Brad Wright and Robert Cooper were the showrunners. And one of the things that really impressed me about the way Brad and Robert ran their productions was that they always promoted from within. Mm. And for instance, I mean, I look back at someone like Andy Makita, who is, you know, a, a, a terrific director. And he started off as a unit manager, was given a shot on the show, and then just 
grew from there. And I knew so many other people who followed that same route. And it was the same with Amanda. She said she went to Stargate University. Exactly. 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 She's a fantastic director. Yeah. Uh, You know, and, and so Paul and I started off as writers in the room. We, we had a co-producer credit, but Brad and Robert were always very good about inviting us into the concept meetings, inviting uh, inviting us into the various production meetings, having us sit in with the, on the network calls, uh, sitting in with them on, on posts. And so we essentially learned the ropes. So we, we moved up from co-executive producers to producers to, uh, I'm sorry, from co-producers to producers to supervising producers to co-execs to executive producers and ultimately to showrunners uh, over the course of 12 years. I mean, it was, it was, it was a, a hell of a long climb, but yeah. we were fortunate in that we were working under a couple of great showrunners. Yeah, that is... That's fantastic. So as somebody, though, who is a showrunner and is in charge of putting together a, a writer's room, like what, what do you think are some, some common mistakes that new writers in writer's rooms make? And did you ever make any of these mistakes? Ah, uh, okay. That's interesting. You're asking about mistakes in the writer's room as, a, as opposed to mistakes in writing. Uh, I think the biggest mistake Wait, doesn't writing I mean, happen in a, in a writer's room well yes but 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 it, it, it does but I find that a lot of the times good writers are not always good in a writer's room and sometimes writers who are good in the writer's room aren't necessarily good script writers uh, occasionally you have both yeah. but you know, usually someone has, um, you know, more of a strength in one department or another department. Um, so in terms of mistakes in the writer's room, uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make is um, being too precious with your ideas. Mm. And it happens, it happens in writing as well. When, yeah. when you write something, you fall in love with it, and then you'll get a note and someone will say, this isn't working, change it and you will stick to your guns. You know, I've been in writer's rooms where someone will come up with an idea and we'll discuss it, we'll hash it out, and ultimately we'll say it's not working, we'll move on. And then an hour later, they'll circle back to their same idea and they will fight for their idea to the point where, you know, they will, they will become a real pain in the ass. Mm. Um, so, I mean, what a lot of the room is, is, you know, obviously coming up with ideas and, and you know, generating those ideas and building building those episodes, uh, but social skills play such a large role because you're in that room with those people for, uh, you know, sometimes eight, nine, 10 hours a day, uh, at least five days a week uh, for multiple weeks, sometimes months. So you got to learn to get along. You got to learn to compromise on your vision and, 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 you know, it just, not be a complete pain in the ass because people that's tend to remember good, that. That's good life advice. I mean, frankly, no, people, yeah. don't, be a, don't be a pain in the ass wherever yeah. you work. Now, some of the best writers I work with don't necessarily come up with the original ideas, but help shape those original ideas. Yeah. I mean, coming up with the original ideas is tough and it's not for everyone, but I, you know, I, I tend to, really like writers who, who e- either, you know, are, are good at structure, uh, are, 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 are character focused, you know, the, the ones who, bas- who, you know, help build uh, a story, yeah. not necessarily the ones who be- come up with the, with the fantastic ideas, although certainly we need those as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So then what is your role as a showrunner then? Like, like in, in especially, you know, uh, putting together a room and, and um, I, I want to say corralling writers. I know I'm all of a sudden imagining like little puppies or cats or, you know, but like, but like what, what is your role then in, in keeping everybody on the same page? Well, I mean, that's it. It really depends on the production too. Um, as a showrunner, you go in, you essentially run the room. Mm-hmm. Um, you present the vision for the show and, and 
you keep everyone on, on, on course and, and hopefully find a way to break as many episodes as possible and then delegate who writes which script. And then once you get into production, we, depending on the budget of the production, on Stargate, we were actually very fortunate in, in that um, in terms of time, we were able to, to, to maintain a writer's room. So when we received network notes, we were, we were able to go out to the writer and say, here, you know, write your, um, you know, your, your, your polish or we're in production. We need to make these changes. Um, but, you know, for instance, on, on Utopia Falls, we didn't carry a writer's room uh, or, it, you know, this, it, that was the case with Dark Matter as well. So essentially, once the uh, writer has delivered their, their final draft, then it's up to you as a showrunner to do the rewrites. If basically a, an actor falls ill or uh, we lose a location or the script is timing short, you need to add an extra scene or the, the script is timing long and you need to lose a scene. That's, that falls on your plate. You, you have to do the rewrite, the 11th hour rewrite that will ensure the, the, the uh, script is uh, delivered on time. It sounds both super stressful and kind of fun too. Like well, it to be is. The, where the buck totally stops, like it, in all it, situations. It does. It does. I mean, and then when you get into production or, or you know, post and production, uh, 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 prep, production and post, you're overseeing everything from, you know, concept, uh, from, um, you know, all the concept meetings, wardrobe, casting, uh, the production. You're trying to be on set as much as, as possible, but to be honest with you, that rarely happens for me because if you're rewriting scripts or you're in prep on other episodes, you don't have time. So I, t- I tend to like to have a, 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 uh, a producer I can trust on set um, for the past couple of productions. For me, that's been Ivan Bartok, who um, was also, I don't know if you know Ivan, but yes. he, 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 um, he always he started- comments on the same, on the same threads that, that I do on food. And uh, I think if I'm correct, I think he, he knows my husband from like long time ago, my husband, UBC film, and he worked at Rainmaker Visual Effects, like mm-hmm. a lot. He was, he wrote, used to rotoscope the, the pool of the Stargate. So, I, oh, you know, cool. Vancouver was, is such a small yeah. community, right? So yeah. everybody knows yeah. everybody. And especially Ivan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, but, but you know, as you pointed out, I mean, he's a guy who, who has experience in the industry. So, you know, he's, he'll sit in on the writer's room, so he'll know exactly what we're looking for, what I'm looking for in terms of, of you know, when we're writing scripts. And yeah. then he'll sit on set and help out the director if, if, and he'll essentially know what I'm, I need in, when it comes to editing. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a relief to have someone like that on set, which will allow me to take the time to meanwhile work on scripts or, yeah. or see, uh, you, know, the, you know, the next episode through, through concept. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think too, because it's not like every single episode is like, okay, we're going to work on this one, and then it's done, and then we move on to the next, right? It's a constant, like, you're working, you're, you might be in post on the last one, and you're in production on this one, and then you're conceiving of the next one, and then you're also thinking of, honestly, it, it sounds completely exhausting. So, but thank thank you for your service, because, you know, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, of your work. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't spend a huge chunk of this episode talking about Stargate um, because of, for so many reasons, uh, especially as somebody here in Vancouver, the impact, you know, both in terms of like the, the careers it launched, the pipelines it set up, you know, the, just, just the passion that it, it lit in a lot of people, you know, so like, I guess, where, where do we even, where do we even start with this? Uh, let's start, let's talk about your, your first step through the, through the Stargate. You know, when you first began working, you know, in, in this universe, in the Stargate universe, did you, did you know, like, did you have any idea of, of what it would lead to, you know, I, how special it was going to be? I had no idea. In fact, uh, when we got the shot to write, to essentially pitch, um, you know, I thought this was great because, of course, it's a huge, like, one of the biggest shows, production shooting in Canada. And when we went to scripts, it was with the understanding that if we delivered a good script, we could land on, on staff. And at the time, I, I, I was of two minds. I just bought a house 
in Montreal. And I was like, oh, do I want to move to the other side of the country? But on the other hand, it was a huge experience. So it was really a, a no-lose situation for us. But, you know, if, if, if worse came to worse and, and, you know, they liked the script and not enough to bring us on staff, then it would be a good credit. Uh, as it turned out, they did like the script, which was an uh, episode called a Point of No Return. No, sorry, uh, Scorched Earth. Uh, and yes, okay. and so we ended up uh, in Vancouver for the start of the uh, SG1's fourth season, and it was with the understanding that the show would go maybe a fifth season, as shows you know were wont to do. Unless okay. now you're on Netflix, in which case you only get three seasons. Mm. Um, and and then everybody would you know go off and do something else, and of course we ended with Showtime in season five and sci-fi picked us up to everyone's surprise for a sixth season. So it was with the understanding that we would do a sixth season and it would be our final season. And then we did pretty good on, on, on uh, yeah. sci-fi. And, and so we were picked up for a seventh season, then an eighth season, and then a ninth season. And, and you know, we launched the um, uh, Atlantis. And, yeah. and uh, so, like I said, it, originally I thought we would be there for two years, which was more than I could have asked for. Uh, but 12 was certainly beyond anything I, I could have ever imagined. It's inc- incredible. You know, and I, I think, um, I mean, as I say, it really, it changed the game up here in Vancouver. I do want to spend some time talking about the characters. I mean, because people fell in love. There's a lot that they fell in love with about about the show, you know, the the adventures and the overall mythology. But I think what what people really committed to were the characters. They fell in love with this 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 family, you know, of characters, right? So, are, do you like? I know this is kind of an unfair question to ask, but my show, I'll ask. Do you have a favorite? Um, Was there one that you that you either identify the most with, or that you really really loved writing for? You know, it, it's tough because it's not like, you know, as, as, as a parent, like a kid, you know, when you have kids, it's very easy to pick a favorite. When you're writing for television, Wait, it's hold very on. difficult. Wait, hold on. You think it's easy for parents <laughs> to pick a favorite? It's always the way. Don't lie. Anyways. Um, but I always knew my parents liked Samantha <laughs> better than me. <laughs> well, you know, we won't have to discuss this any further, but we know. Um, I, I find the characters with a sense of humor tend to be the ones I gravitate towards. So in SG-1, of course, it was Jack. Um, later, after he left, then it became Vala. Mm. Uh, in Non Atlantis, uh, you know, everybody loved writing for David Hewlett yeah. as McKay. Uh, and the universe, you know, totally was a little different. So the opportunities for humor weren't as uh, there as much, but certainly Eli, more than any of the other characters gave us the opportunity for humor. Yeah. Um, but what you were talking about earlier about family is, is dead on. You know, I've said it time and again, people tune in for the hook, but they stay for the character. And one of the things that Brad and Robert did so well was to establish that sense of family, not, you know, just on screen, but off screen as well. But certainly you see it on screen. Mm. And I often say whether it's uh, Team SG-1 or the Atlantis Expedition or the crew of the Destiny, uh, at the end of the day, they're all about family. And in fact, if uh, you check out the series finale of Universe, I wrote a scene that essentially reflected that where, you know, it's the final mess hall scene where they're sitting around and they discuss the fact that they are family. And I love the fact that, that viewers at home are essentially tuning in to check out or visit with their extended family. Yeah. And so that's something that I took away from Stargate that when I created my own show, Dark Matter, mm-hmm. that was very much at the heart of the show. The fact that, you know, there were these, you know, seven uh, disparate individuals who didn't get along as well, but ultimately, ultimately discovered that they are family. And, and sort of like that uh, final scene in Gauntlet, that mess hall scene, it's something that, I paralleled in Dark Matter whenever they got together in the mess hall. It was very much a family get together, so much so that that uh, you know the character of the android in Dark Matter goes through this whole arc where she feels like an outsider, and then is ultimately 
accepted as a member of the crew and she takes a seat at the table. And when she does that, you know, that gives you kind of a, certainly a visual confirmation that she is a part of the family. Yeah. So absolutely, you know, everything you said, family is, is what, it's, what it's all about in sci-fi. Um, what the other thing too uh, that's connected to family and connected to Stargate is the fact that fans have built their own families through the show. I've had the opportunity to uh, attend GateCon and also I followed Amanda to her convention in the UK. And, you know, it was, Amanda said that there's in some ways where it's almost like it's her presence is incidental, you know, that like everybody is using her as an excuse to get together to have their family reunion, right? You know, that people use, that they found friends and community through the show. You know, it's a very, very, well, like how would you characterize or describe the Stargate fandom? I would describe them as very passionate. Uh, yes, I mean, are. obviously like any genre uh, fandom, uh, they're passionate and it can be kind of a double-edged sword. It's everything you described and more the fact that they are like family. And, and, and as I said, I've been blogging for so now like 13 years and there are people who read the blog and comment on the blog, follow the blog, who have been there since the very beginning. I'm online and, and you know, I connect with fans who are longtime fans of, of the franchise or there are um, fans who reach out, which, which, which I love, fans who talk about the fact that they grew up watching the show with, you know, their parents or their father who introduced them or, or, or the fact that they watched Amanda Tapping and she inspired them to pursue a career in, what, you know, astrophysics, astrophysics or what have you. Astrophysics, yes. yes. Countless people yeah, have said that yeah. Amanda encouraged them to do that. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It is so then, I mean, amazing. This real world I mean, impact of yes. a sci-fi story. I mean, that's... Yeah that really just boggles my mind and makes me very grateful for yeah. that. But then, then again, it's a double-edged sword, like, like I said. I mean, they're very passionate, so, so sometimes, you know, they, they you know, we, we discuss the fact that these characters are like family to them, and you don't screw with family. So sometimes when creative changes uh, happen that they don't agree with, they're very vocal about, uh, you know, voicing their displeasure. So... But it's, you know, it's all part of, of working in sci-fi. Yeah, and, and why you do what you do. Um, you have been a leader in the movement to not only bring back Stargate, but to anchor any new version in the 300 plus episodes that preceded it. Um, where do we stand now with, with all of those efforts? And um, what impact do you think those efforts, I mean, a lot on social media, I mean, on countless occasions, you have brought, mm -hmm. you have made Stargate trends around the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, more than anything, it's just to, to wake up the decision makers and let them know that there's a fandom, there's a huge fandom out there. And it just kind of boggles my mind sometimes where, when I see what gets rebooted or what gets greenlit. And I think the Stargate franchise, you know, commands such a loyal viewership, you, you know, why not bring it back? And of course, we're bringing it back. I'm not talking about a reboot. Yeah. Um, because, you know, what made Stargate special was, um, well, Brad Wright and Robert Cooper at the helm, the fact that they, you know, they created these characters, they created this world, they created stories and a tone that appealed to so many viewers around the world. Um, I think the last thing you want to do, I think, I, I think, frankly, the stupidest thing to do is to bring back a franchise with an existing fan base and reboot it and essentially wipe out, you know, what we say, 350 episodes of canon. Yeah. So not only do you piss off the existing fan base, um, you create right on, yeah, out of the gate the potential for um, a, 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 a um, negative online reaction. Yeah, That's the nice thing about genre fans as well. They're very active on social media. So you, you know, it's a no-brainer yeah. for me that you, if you, you bring the show back, but you, you bring it back in a way that offers the best of both worlds. I know um, a, a studio may be reticent to, let's say, continue the adventures of, of Stargate Atlantis or Universe. Uh, so what you would do is, is introduce a new team. Um, you, would, you would create a, a new series that would, allow, that would introduce new viewers to the world yeah. of Stargate in an exciting way. But given the fact that it is set in, in, in the same universe, it allows for some interesting cameos maybe 
Carter, maybe O'Neill, maybe Teal, maybe you know, Daniel Jackson or anyone from Universe or Atlantis. It, it, you know, it, it's the best of both possible worlds. Yeah, um, it doesn't make yeah. sense to, I mean, especially when you ha- you built an incredible, like you already have it there. You have the right. mythology yes. and it's there. And, you know, and who knows, like you could even, like they could even take a, like that's some, that, you know, Daniel's actions and that episode that he didn't know that what he did and then it led to this whole other thing. And, you know, I mean, other, other series have done this incredibly well. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Who t- was yeah. dormant for decades, right? And, you know, Anyway, so, I mean... I think, I think ultimately, <laughs> what it comes down to is MGM is being very careful. Uh, but I can't say that things are moving along with Brad Wright at the helm. So, it's in great hands. Uh, but as, as, you know, this is the Hollywood way. Things always take forever to get going. And then, it went, when that green light comes, they want it yesterday. So, yeah. uh, you know, all I can say is to the fans, thank you for participating in the tweet storms. They have helped. They've gotten the ball rolling. Um, someone on, on Reddit, where I'm also active, asked how many Chevrons are, are locked. Uh, I want to say we've, we've locked the fifth Chevron. So we're, we're getting closer. Closer, closer. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get good news sooner than later okay so we are we are very soon we are going to play favorite things mm-hmm. um, which as i did explain the rules to you you will tell me your favorite things um i do want to spend a bit more time talking about dark matter though because oh, excellent i love that show even though it was not filmed in vancouver <laughs> <laughs> but it did feature vancouver talent and it was just it was so refreshing to watch and you know so let's talk about like the the um the origin of of dark matter where did the where did the ideas come from well you know as i mentioned my experience from working on stargate really inspired me uh in dark matter i mean it's a completely different show and yeah. yet tonally uh it's very similar in terms of humor uh, in terms of themes, like this idea of family and, and um, you know, it, it, it really came from my love of, of um, bad guys. I like bad guys and I always liked serialized shows. So I wanted to write a serialized sci-fi series that at the same time could be episodic in nature, but, you know, um, always keep the, the viewer off balance, you know, twists and turns and shocks and surprises. So, um, you know, in, in, in the pilot, we introduce these characters who have no memories of who they are, or how they got on board, and they're very much stock characters. You know, there's a gunslinger, and there's, you know, there's the android, there's, there's the kid. And then the whole point is to present these, I guess, sci-fi chestnuts, and over the course of the series, undermine the audience expectations. I don't know. I remember when the when the reviews first came out for the pilot, people were like, "Oh my god, these these characters are so cliche." I wanted to say, yes, that's the point because they have no memories, they have no 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 past to draw on to sort so of. So they're reverting out. to type yeah. because they yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's kind of fun because one of the characters, characters of three, played by Anthony Lemke. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of an asshole in the beginning. And I remember going online and people were like, oh, I like all the characters except three. I hate the three characters. And so much so that I remember telling Anthony, I'm like, I think I've done you a disservice. I, I, you know, I'm really worried about this. And he just laughed and he said, no, this is great. And true enough, by the end of the show's run, three, played by Anthony Lemke, was a fan favorite yeah. because, you know, over time you get to know these characters and, and they become like Team SG-1, like family. Yeah. I'm interested by what you said about villains and a fascination mm-hmm. with villains. Um, what is it about, about a villain that, I, that you I, so enjoy? And like, is, like, is, like do you think, because I, I, my favorite villains are, are ones where it's even debatable if they're villains, like somebody like Killmonger, you know, who has murderous mm-hmm. tendencies and has been very abusive and whatever, but also there's a... I, I see where he's coming from and I, and I empathize, you know, but then there are well, other ones who just seem to be so psychotic and, you know, I don't, I don't have any fascination or to want to even know why yeah. they're doing what they're doing. T- tell me where that comes well, from for you. You know, it, I, I think back to a, a course I took, a psychology course uh, in college and I remember a professor uh, telling us that they did studies that showed that, uh, 
former friends make the worst of enemies and while former enemies make the best of friends. And I think there's something of that in villains. The, the idea that you take these reprehensible characters and you redeem them uh, in, 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 in a certain respect. And so, I mean, they become so nuanced and so interesting. I, I look back at Stargate and, and there's a character of, um, I mean, McKay, he was an insufferable jerk when we first met him and yet we redeem him. And, he, and even though he continued to be kind of an insufferable jerk, he was still who he was. Yeah. By getting to know him, we, we kind of understood him. And it was the same with, with Woolsey, who, who played by the wonderful Robert Picardo, who was you know, this pencil-pushing pain in the butt when we first introduced him. And then by, by the end of his run, he's, he's you know, the lovable commander of the Atlantis expedition. So that's what I wanted to do with Dark Matter, you know, introduce these characters who don't know who they are. And at the end of the pilot, find out that they're the worst of the worst, that there was these reprehensible villains, and then spend the rest of the series attempting to rehabilitate them in the eyes of the audience. And something that, um, uh, you know, I think was done really well in The Shield, uh, which was a, a sort of a cop show with like an amazing pilot with an incredibly shocking ending to the pilot that's, that spends, you know, the, the course of its run attempting to redeem this character or Tony Soprano, the, the mob boss. And, and, you know, you may not always love him, but you understand him. Whereas something like Breaking Bad was actually the reverse where Walter White was his poor, uh, um, you know, victim of, yeah. you know, cancer and, and the circumstance of a lowly chemistry uh, professor who becomes this heinous criminal. Okay. Uh, and I just love those transformations. Do you think that we all have the potential to be villains? You know, as somebody who has, really, clearly you've thought a lot about, you know, what goes into making us human. You know, do you, do you think we all contain, contain that kind of potential? Absolutely. We, everyone has a dark side to them. And, and then at the other, you know, on the flip side, everyone has uh, the, I guess, the seeds of redemption within them as well. Yeah. Okay. Oof. I'm going to be, I'm going to be thinking about this part of the conversation mm -hmm. for a lot, a long after and thinking about what kind of supervillain I would be. Um, okay. So let's do some favorite things then. Uh, the key is to answer from your gut. Don't even okay. think too much about it. Just whatever comes first. So you ready? Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm sitting down. Ready. Okay. You're ready. You're ready. Okay. Um, favorite Vancouver shot series that you did not work on? I'd say The Outer Limits. This is a show that Brad Wright uh, uh, was a showrunner of. And it's not just because it's Brad Wright. I mean, it is kind of because it is Brad Wright because he wrote the majority of the episodes and, and tonally, you know, and in, term, and in terms of stories, very similar to what he did on, on, on Stargate. But I love the um, anthology uh, setup. You know, I mean, I grew up watching Twilight Zone, uh, and it's one of those rare sci-fi anthologies. Like it was a precursor to Black Mirror. Yeah. So, yeah, if I was given the choice, if I could go back in time and work on any other Vancouver shot series, that would have been the one. Interesting. Favorite cartoon character of all time? Uh, Daffy Duck. You know, we talked about kind of reprehensible uh, characters. He's a bit of a jerk. Yeah. And yet he's lovable, <laughs> nevertheless. You know, very, he would have actually fit in perfectly on the Dark Matter crew. Absolutely. Huh. That is a very revealing answer. Um, favorite karaoke song? Oh, karaoke song. Um, you know, I, uh, I don't do karaoke. I've never done karaoke. But if I had to pick one... I would pick uh, Dumb and Donna by uh, Icon. If you know your K-pop, you know this is an amazing song. Everything I know about K-pop, I know from looking at your Twitter feed. I also know that they are very, their fans are very, very powerful. So nothing but respect. Also, their videos look amazing. Um, yes, favorite, 12 pounds. Favorite comfort food. Mm, fried chicken, fried chicken sandwiches uh, in particular. In fact, Blog TO, which is kind of a local uh, website, just yeah. did a rundown of the, I think the top 10 
fried chicken sandwiches in Toronto. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I've checked out about half of them. So, I mean, I really got my work cut out for me in, yeah. in the coming weeks. Okay. And this is not part of the regular questions, but you're, mm-hmm. you're a West Islander, you're a Montrealer. What is your favorite thing to eat when you're back in Montreal? Like the real, like, comfort food. My mother makes, uh, speaking of a, a fried chicken, uh, something called fettine in Italian, which is basically a chicken breast, which is pounded flat, breaded with um, you know, you know, breadcrumbs and, 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 and garlic and, and, and with Parmesan cheese and, and fried. Uh, so that and spicy green peppers. So that is, that is the classic when I'm in Montreal uh, home cooked meal. Oh, that sounds amazing. Very Italian too. Very, oh, beautiful. For me, not that you asked, but I'll just tell you. It's, I'm wondering. It's, it's a feast. Well, I mean, it changes, but I would kill for some Cote St. Luke chicken just to go and have, yeah. you know, a be- beautiful rotisserie chicken, lots of gravy, like beautiful fries, and then a big slice of their Boston cream pie. That's what I, okay. that's what I want yeah. right now. So <laughs> if, 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 if I didn't count... Uh, home-cooked meals, Yeah, it would be the smoked meat sandwich at Smoked Meat Pete, uh, which is on the West Island, and you get it medium fat. It is delicious. I, I Every time we're in Montreal, I'll, I'll have to go at least once or twice. And there's nothing, I don't know about Toronto. I know a little bit about Toronto because I did spend my teen years mm-hmm. there, but there's nothing really like, like Montreal food, no. you can only get in Montreal. I, I don't know if it's something in the water. You could even have all the same ingredients in Vancouver. It does not taste the same. I, I think, you know, Toronto does have some great restaurants, but some of the stuff is just kind of bewildering. There's this thing they call bagels, which, you know, if you've eaten bagels in Montreal, you, you know what bagels are. But in Toronto, is like, with the, it's, like, it's like a piece of bread that's yeah. shaped like a bagel. Yeah. That is, is, is like a tasteless thing. It's, it's just, uh, you know. It's a device on which to put cream cheese or something. No, it's not a bagel. You don't even want it. Basically, it's, a, it's, it's something that someone brought into, I remember the writer's room once and we threw out. It just basically don't. <laughs> What are you trying to do? I mean, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's they're embarrassing. They're like hockey pucks. No, they're, they're awful. They're awful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I'm going to now I'm gonna do another online order from San Viator Bagels. <laughs> stale San Viator so, Bagels are better than almost anything else they have in Vancouver. Oh, you sound okay. like my wife. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, favorite supervillain? Oh, uh, Dr. Doom. Yeah. Stylish. Had his own country. You know. I was always a big fan of, by the way, the, the James Bond villains growing up, which is why when you often see photos of me, I'm in a full um, suit. I'm just, you know, kind of the, the regular suit. They black suits, but I have kind of the dark purple. I have the, you know, the, the, the three-push suit with the ties. I always often think, you know, if I was a James Bond villain, how would I dress? And, you know, I dress accordingly. You need a hairless cat to carry with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was your favorite book as a child? Ah, favorite book as a child. That's a good one. Um, you know, I, I think back, I think there were actually two books called Dangerous Visions 1 and 2, which were a collection of sci-fi short stories um, by, uh, it was actually Harlan Allison. I'm not sure, I, th- I think he may have edited it, but, but the short stories were from a variety of different authors. And, and I think those two books really influenced me. Uh, as a child and as, as uh, you know, t- and, and inspired me to become the writer I am today. Yeah. Okay. We're done the favorite things. You did very well. Okay, that's so it. Much. Okay. You did really so, well. Um, I was nervous. Thank you. If you could go back in time to the beginning of your career in, in TV, what advice would you give yourself? Or, because this mm-hmm. is an option, would you, would you not give yourself any advice at all and just let things fall where they may. It is um, the time I mean, traveler's conundrum, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's easier, it's easy to say, but I would advise myself not to stress out so much. Mm-hmm. Things always work out in the end, whether, you know, through difficult times or not things, you know, you always end up where you end up. Yeah. Um, I would probably advise myself to, um, 
take a couple of those paychecks and uh, invest in, in, in gold and silver. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's very practical advice. <laughs> I would probably advise myself also maybe not to take a couple of jobs that in, uh, in retrospect, maybe we're not a good fit. Mm. Also, uh, I would probably tell myself to be more of an asshole to assholes. Uh, and it's, it's one thing that I learned, frankly, on Strike It is the fact that Brad Robert did such a good job. Uh, you know, in all fairness, it, I, we landed on, on season four. So by that point, they had worked out all the kinks and they, they described the production as, as a well-oiled machine. Yeah. But, you know, I remember we were looking at cast one day and I mentioned an actor and Brad said, um, LTS. And I was like, what's LTS? He says, life's too short. And that was his mantra. Uh, he didn't want to work with jerks. Mm. You know, and, and so as a result, the Stargate set was just a joy to work on. And it's something I decided to bring to Dark Matter. And, and one of the things I love about Dark Matter is when guest stars came on board, they were like, this is such a great positive uh, atmosphere. And so kudos to Brad, kudos to Rob. Um, but, um, you know, that, 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 that is very much it. Um, on the other hand, you'll always have, you know, we were kind of spoiled on Stargate in that um, everybody was very supportive, um, which really is not the reality in a lot of productions. And we ended up on a production when, when it was just the opposite, where, um, you know, people were actively throwing each other under the bus. And, and frankly, it came up as a complete shock because I was so used to the Stargate way of doing things where, you know, if there was a problem, you, you know, everyone got together and you had each other's backs. And uh, so, you know, we were kind of eaten alive on that production just because we did the very Canadian thing and we're trying to sort of compromise. But in retrospect, now I realize I should have just done the opposite and, and, and fought fire with fire. Oh, that is beautiful advice. We can't go, but we can't, I don't have a way back machine, so we can't go back. <laughs> oh, to okay. time, but, you know, oh, okay. it's good to either embody that moving forward or if, if people who are at different po- earlier in their careers can hear you, you know, you'll, you'll spare them that kind of heartache. Chocolatsy. This is amazing. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I mean, I, I thought, when am I going to end up on Sabrina's show? I guess she's saving, <laughs> she's saving the best for last. Are you, is this, are you winding down? This is down? not the end. No, no, this is not, this is not gauntlet in the mess hall. No, 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 no. But it was that moment where I'm like, I'm, I'm actively ordering food that you are tweeting out. And I'm like, I got to get, the, I got to get him. Like, this is it. He, his name is evoked all the time. Like, we just got to. We got to get him in there and to figure out who this who this human being is. And uh, yeah, you're pretty great. So thank you thank very you much. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, you're you're pretty great too. I mean, you know, doing this and 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 kudos. How long have you been doing these uh, podcasts? Uh, I have been eighty four years. No, I think so. Our first was uh, March twenty nineteen. Um, mm-hmm. This is we like we've just released our 112th episode. Wow. So we've been we've been telling a lot of stories. You know, we've had a few people come back a couple of times and I'd love to host you again as well. But yeah, I've been covering Absolutely. I've been covering the industry for a decade and I I've I my husband as I said worked for Rainmaker Visual Effects, so you know, I'm very familiar mm-hmm. with uh with with a lot of the behind the scenes work and perhaps most um most formatively, I am. I love sci-fi. I love it. I have been eating it up since I was yay high to a grasshopper. That's the saying, right? Yay high grasshopper. I, 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 I think I don't it's knee high, but yay high, knee high. It's knee high. <laughs> I made it more complicated or more poetic. I don't know. Yeah, since I was knee high to a grasshopper, I've been watching sci-fi. When I was in Kirkland, I watch. I was watching sci-fi. Amazing. So that's that's really a, it's incredible to peek behind the curtains. So please come back. Uh, where can our back. listeners come back. find you, follow you, celebrate you on the social media? Come find me either uh, on my blog at josephmalazzi.com where I post every day. Uh, you can find me on Twitter where I'm very active on Twitter as Baron Destructo. Um, or actually if you hang around either the Dark Matter or Stargate subreddits uh, I on, on Reddit, you'll find me there as well. I do have a follow-up question because um, I, I have not heard a lot of writers or showrunners admit to to 
you know, go, going out there into the, the, uh, all the, the corners of the internet and talking with, with fans. Um, does, has that ever impacted your work at all, those kind of conversations that you have on Reddit or even on, on the Twitter? Well, I mean, it, it certainly has gotten me in trouble during the Stargate days. Because as I said, <laughs> you know, fandom can be a double-edged sword. And when they're not happy with you, they'll let you know. And if mm. you're on social media and you respond and they're not happy with you, they'll also let you know. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I you know, to, to be honest, it, it started off for me. And when, when I got the Stargate gig, I actually went on a bunch of Stargate communities to sort of find out a little about the show and, and, and what the fans were responding to. Yeah. And, and sort of that kind of cemented my, my love for the various, you know, fandom communities. And, and it's just kind of a way of, of giving them, giving back and, and really making them feel like they are, you know, part of, part of the world and, 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 which they very much are, which is, yeah. which is, I think, something really particular and special to genre television. Yeah, it really, it really is. And I do, I often feel like I'm a little bit of their avatar sometimes. And I, I take <laughs> this, I take my position as their representative very seriously. So thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. I appreciate you so very much. Please like and subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. They help us find even more listeners. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVR Screen Scene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Furminger. I'm the only one to blame. And it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Tyson Braddock and Paul Furminger for technical support. Yes, we are a family business. And to Dane Devillet for the original music. Wyvere Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic, dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.